Oh, guys, you can smell the basil here. This is just wonderful. I like to just take it from the stem at the very part of the stem, like here, break it down like that. Maisha Mitchell is giving us a garden tour. Raised beds of wood or cinder block are crowded with basil and rosemary, right. and long red hot peppers are ready to be picked. Okay, so this is the Agrove Community Garden in Frenchtown on Did Street, and it's part of the Tallahassee Food Network. And this garden has been growing good, wholesome food for quite a few years now. And very excited because it really helps us to learn more about how food can help to heal our bodies. All around, people are weeding or harvesting fruit from trees. What you see here is a whole community of folk who volunteer, you know, to come out and share. Mitchell is the executive director of the Greater Frenchtown Revitalization Council. This is a front porch Florida initiative established by former Governor Jeb Bush meant to revitalize stressed communities. The council coordinates programs related to health and young people. You ever seen persimmons before? No. Oh, there. They're beautiful, but right now they're not quite ripe. So this tree is indigenous to Tallahassee. Uh, when we lived in Smoky Hollow, this is one of the favorite foods that I used to eat all the time. Smoky Hollow is all but gone. Its home's destroyed to make way for government buildings. It exists today only in replica structures commemorating what has long been lost. And Frenchtown is considered a food desert, a place where fresh, healthy food is not readily available, and many storefronts sit empty. Until the 1960s, Tallahassee's majority black Frenchtown and Smoky Hollow neighborhoods were places where people grew and shared food. Whatever couldn't be grown could be bought at nearby grocery stores. That was by necessity, given the racial and legally enforced segregation at the time. This is how we fed our family. This is when we can, we canned everything. But somehow we have gotten away from it, either through generations of not doing it or thinking it's tedious to do. And we have gotten away from it, but we got to get back to our roots. This is our roots. Rose Garrison is volunteering in the iGrow garden, pulling weeds and watering plants. She says it brings her back to her childhood in Alabama. Put things in jars we shared. You know, we got together, and everybody in the neighborhood would come out and get corn, peanuts. When it's time to get the sweet potatoes, I remember as a child, we used to walk behind the tractor, and we would pick the peanuts up, and we would pick up the sweet potatoes, and everybody would get a part of it. For Mitchell as well, working in the garden brings back memories of growing up in Tallahassee's Smoky Hollow neighborhood. We had food all the time. Never, never was an issue of hunger, per se, because everybody had gardens. You know, everybody had raised bed gardens container gardens. They had gardens inside of their windowsills in the kitchen. They grow the, the small herbs for medicine purposes and also for seasonings and things of that nature. Growing and gardening knowledge, says Mitchell, was passed from people who owned farms in the country to their friends and relatives in the city. Some of our family members lived in the country, so we would go out either down to Wakulla, a Crawfordville, or down to Bradfordville in chairs and we would go and learn how to do all the things we brought back to Smoky Hollow. What if I said I was planted on this planet from a seed like a tree? You can see it in my roots and I got melanin in me. The iGrow Garden was not always a garden. Later in the podcast, we'll hear more about this field's history of violent crime and how the council and folks like Mitchell managed to transform a negative space into a positive one. One that's a step closer to the Tallahassee of Mitchell's youth, a Tallahassee whose lands once fed both the body and the soul. Black and proud to be. Black and proud to be. Down in me. Down in me. I'm black and I am free.
I'm your host, Rob Diaz de Viegas, and this is Not So Black and White, a community's divided history from WFSU Public Media. What if I said I was planning on this planet? I see like a tree. I see it in my roots. I got melanin in me. I'm black and I'm proud. Black and proud to be. God deep down in me. I'm black and I am free. Everybody had a garden. My Aunt Eve, right behind me, had a garden. When my mother was a child, they had a big garden in the back. Plus, they owned the land across the street where the pear orchard was. So they had vegetables and gardens over there. Author and historian Anne Roberts grew up in Frenchtown and still lives there today. And people prided themselves on the gardens. How neat the rows are, how colorful it was. The various colors, Uh, tomatoes, there were different kind of tomatoes. Uh, The peas would run up the fence. Everybody's little plot of land was fenced off. Yeah, we had little wire fence in the front and in the back here. Somebody would come out and say, well, that sure is pretty. And I'd be wondering, pretty? Nothing but a garden. Starting in the late 1960s, the Frenchtown Roberts knew began to change. In the very late 50s and, and the 60s, there was no equality. Even though folk like to say separate but equal, it was no equality. We didn't know how well off we were living separate. Sometimes I wish I had continued. It's not that Roberts is saying segregation is good, but what it did, says Roberts, is kept black neighbors banded together. Times changed. People were earning more money. Goods were more accessible. And they became desegregated. So slowly people began to leave the areas. The areas like Frenchtown. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 ended legal segregation. People were no longer relegated to areas of the city designated as black only or white only. And Roberts watched as her neighbors started to move away from their all-black enclave. We had people who were educators at both the universities. We had high school principals. We had a slew of teachers. So once the area became desegregated, we had folk who moved out. But after the people came into the area with the drugs in the late 60s, everybody who wanted to get out and could get out, they did so. And a few of us are still here. I think I'm the only one who lives in the same house they were born in. Families left. Robert stayed and watched her neighborhood begin to decline. When families moved out, if they owned their houses, some were able to sell them. Some were not. So what happened? They rented them out of state. People treated them any way they wanted the houses. Some of them ended up falling down or became infested with squatters or the drug folk. Now, that's always the exception. Some people came in glad to find a house in that condition and moved in. But in this area, if you leave this house long, the bugs come in too. So it doesn't stand very long. Neither did the gardens that Roberts loved. The end of segregation was also the end of Frenchtown's black-owned grocery stores. When the integration started, we, we felt free of going to the, the stores downtown, to A&P and to Winn-Dixie. We could go there much more freely. You didn't go to those stores because you were uncomfortable in them. But once the area became desegregated, you could go and feel much better. And they had a much larger array of goods than the small corner stores here. 
You could even go down and, and get your coffee from A&P and have it ground. And my mother declared it was some of the best coffee around. So people moved out of the area. You didn't have to walk right to the store. You got in your cars because once you moved out, you got the car and everything, and you could go to the other stores. So stores slowly declined in the area. They couldn't compete with the stores downtown or elsewhere. The stores on uh, Adams and Tennessee. And the last grocery store didn't leave probably until the 70s. Around the same time Frenchtown began to decline, the residents of Smoky Hollow were forced from their homes. The two black enclaves were less than two miles apart. The state of Florida seized Smoky Hollow land through eminent domain, creating a complex of government buildings around Florida's historic capital. Mitchell says many of those residents had few choices but to move into government-subsidized housing in South City or live with friends and family elsewhere. Throughout the country, there's a lot of movement, a lot of urban renewal and eminent domain and all that type of thing happening in the late 60s. And in the early 70s, people were just displaced. And when you go to other people's houses and live with other folk, you don't have the same type of opportunities to grow food. They don't have the same type of values. And you don't have to leave town and not have access to the country anymore, you know, where you learn to do those things. And when you don't have your family members who live with you all those years um, able to come back and live with the public housing, that's tough because uh, in public housing, they don't necessarily want you to bring any other people with you. All you can bring is your nuclear family. You know, mom and dad and the children, but your cousins and aunties and grandmamas and all those, you can bring them. And it was just hard. Black land loss wasn't limited to cities. Those cousins' farms in the country, where Mitchell's family learned about growing food, slowly faded away as well with devastating consequences. It's a shot to the whole land. No land is home to the spirit. We are divine beings God made and made the mirror. We all free. There's no such thing as aliens when the whole damn planet was made for we. Governments and politicians create boundaries, but not the outer limits. That's outside your jurisdiction. According to a recent study from the University of Massachusetts, black farmers lost $326 billion worth of acreage during the last century. For perspective, in 1900, black farmers owned 14% of agricultural land. Today, that figure is down to half a percent. In a capitalistic society, land is extremely valuable. It's critical to generational wealth transfer. Dr. Sandra Thompson is a researcher at Florida A&M University. By the early 20th century, former enslaved people were looking to land to start building wealth and secure their economic and social future. So by 19... 10, formerly enslaved people had amassed over 15 million acres of land. It was based on buying a little bit at a time, maybe some being given a little bit at a time. As of the most recent USDA census of agricultural lands in 2017, that figure drops to 4.5 million acres. Losing ownership of land is a significant economic loss, but that land was also part of communities communities that supported and protected their members through tough times, from slavery through segregation. Thompson calls those communities legacy communities. A legacy community is a community that was started on plantations pre-emancipation. Some were started right after emancipation, but in both instances, they are still 
viable, live communities where people live. Thompson has identified dozens of these communities in a five-county stretch of the Florida Panhandle, from Madison to Jackson County. One of the things is that in order to survive the conditions of slavery, you had to organize yourself in a way that you could take care of yourself, your family, and those you love. This meant that families looked after each other, even after emancipation. One way was through the food they grew. Thompson grew up in Barrow Hill, one of those legacy communities in northeast Leon County. Very few people didn't maintain a garden, some chickens, few hogs, maybe a cow or two. Some had larger if they really made a living from the land. My grandfather died in 1958, so we had, think, probably about initially 13 acres and then three were given to people or sold. And so my grandmother couldn't manage that land, so she would let a gentleman from Rock Hill, the legacy community to the north of us, farm on the land at no cost. And he grew peas and corn and all different kinds of vegetables. And that was the way of sharing and bartering in the sense that you've got all this land you can farm at no cost, but it helps manage the land, keep it so it doesn't grow up. And you get to benefit from some of the vegetables that are grown. Not all of these communities have made it into the 21st century. For many, all that's left are the cemeteries. Some, like Smoky Hollow, were lost to eminent domain, but many have been eroded due to the loss of individual parcels that have been carved up and sold off to developers, thus erasing them from history. The Federation of Southern Cooperatives and other researchers have identified Ayers' property as the primary reason. So what happened a lot of the time is... Say your grandmother or grandfather had actually purchased the property. A lot of the time, it could have been property they were enslaved on. Billy Ventimiglia is a graduate student at Florida State University. She's the senior planner of the North Star Legacy Community Project, which is a collaboration between Sandra Thompson and FSU. If me and, say, Ashton, Chloe, and Howard were siblings, and my parents or my grandmother died, and they passed it on to us, we might not have had a formalized will. So the way that happens is now we're kind of all joint property owners. If we don't agree on what to do to the property, be that to create a trust or to sell or keep it, one of us could go to court. And the judge could then decide all four of us have to sell if Howard wants to sell. So that's how we ended up losing a lot of that property that was owned by black people. Through the FAMU Cooperative Extension, Sandra Thompson offers workshops to help people hold on to their land by educating them on the legal structures surrounding the ownership of property. Yet, while a better understanding of the law could prevent further loss of black land, it can't bring back what's already gone. Both in the city and in the country, people of color have lost communities or seen them radically altered. And many people have lost touch with their agricultural roots. At the same time black land loss was being felt in the 20th century, black communities began to see a rise in health problems such as diabetes, high blood pressure, and obesity, all diseases that are food-related. In 2012, a group of community leaders and youth volunteers tried to reestablish their connection to the land in a new form, a community garden. I was planning it on this planet. I was planning it on this planet. 
From a seed like a tree. From a seed like a tree. You can see it in my roots. You can see it in my roots. I got melanin in me. I got melanin in me. This is the Frenchtown Urban Farm, a beautiful small oasis of herbs, culinary, medicinal, and some uh, annual crops that we're growing. So yeah, it's just a farm space where we have volunteers out. Sundiata L oversees Frenchtown Urban Farm and Compost Community. It backs up to the Igro Garden, which is a street over. We also compost, as you see, you're surrounded by compost material here. Uh, and it's just an urban market garden is what we would call it. Crops at the urban farm are grown in rows, like on a commercial farm. From Dunn Street, you can see piles of earth and vegetation in various states of breakdown. So anything that we grow, we try to bring those commodities to the general public. So we'll set up at the Frenchtown Farmer's Market. We'll also sell through an online market, Red Hills, which you're, you're familiar with. And we focus on composting as our primary business model. And then from there, we grow food and recycle that food into the community and the scraps come back to us to reintegrate back into the compost program. And so it's kind of like a closed loop system that we've been able to create. L doesn't come from a family of farmers, but indirectly, family provided his connection to the soil. I come from a family of entrepreneurs, and the reason why I'm actually in Florida is because my father, 40-something odd years ago, came to Tallahassee with his brother-in-law to start a worm business. So they came to Tallahassee to grow and cultivate red wiggler worms for bait. So they had contracts with different clients where they would sell their worms to for fishing. And you know, years later, I end up working with those same worms, but in a different capacity, you know, within agriculture. It's connecting with the earth. It is getting back to your roots as a, as a human being. iGrow is located parallel to the urban farm. It both sells and gives away its produce. IGRO began in 2012 when the Tallahassee Food Network secured funding to turn an empty lot on Dent Street into something more. Initially, says Sundiata L, the goal was to combat the health problems that came when fresh food was no longer easily available. The origins of this farm were to help young people fight childhood obesity through farming, through agriculture. According to the National Institutes of Health, black adults are nearly twice as likely as white adults to develop type 2 diabetes and that, quote, this racial disparity has been rising over the last 30 years. It's a disparity driven by obesity rates. But the problem is far more complicated than just access to healthier choices, making food choices a matter of economic class. In a 2018 interview, L noted that Urban Farms customers came mostly from areas of Tallahassee more affluent than Frenchtown. The majority of the people who buy through this online venue are usually Caucasian, upper high middle class, right, um, and on the north side of town. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with people who are educated in terms of why these foods are important, but the people who don't know are the ones that need the most help. I've come out and just sat here till daybreak because I knew it's a safe place. To some, the garden has value beyond the food grown there. Eric Prather is homeless, and he finds peace in this space. He remembers what this place was like before it was a garden. You know, I had uh, two friends who died in this field here before the garden. 
may have got robbed in this field before the garden, and I've been in this community all my life. It changed a lot of people's direction, you know, from evil things, you know, let's go to the field. But it's not the field anymore, it's the garden, the place of peace. This uh, garden has done a lot for this community. You know, it's not just a garden where they grow things. It's a place of peace, you know, where some of us, you know, who are addicts or homeless, we could come here and think, smell fresh flowers, vegetables, and just sit down and just, just think by ourselves, you know, just have peace, get away from the world, everybody. The garden, is, it's more than a garden. The neighborhood around the farm and garden is much like longtime resident Ann Roberts described it earlier in the show with a few empty lots and abandoned homes. To some, it's a sign of decline, but Roberts feels optimistic about the future of her neighborhood. This is uh, an old area. We lived next to people who had been here forever. So it has been a great place to live considering some of the things that have occurred here. And we are trying to improve it, to bring it back to a viable single-family area. And Famuse Thompson says it all begins by helping people get back to their roots. Bringing recognition and elevating this history and talking about it, we are then able to reintroduce to motivate people to see what it could be like, what it was. And let's, how, how can we put all those practices into play today? It's an ongoing issue that is not so black and white. What if I said I was planted on this planet from a seed like a tree? You can see it in my roots and I got melanin in me. I'm black and I'm proud. I'm black and proud to be for WFSU Public Media, I'm Rob Diaz de Villegas. black and I'm proud. black and I'm proud to be.